Okay, welcome to the Filling Pearl podcast. I'm very excited to have an extremely special guest on uh, today's uh, podcast, and that's Daisy Christodoulou. Hello, Daisy. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Did I actually pronounce your name right? I, sh- I should have checked that out before. Great effort. Great effort. Good attempt. Good attempt. Okay, so first of all, I suppose what we have to talk about, or given the current circumstances, mm-hmm. is what have you been up to during lockdown? Uh, so what have I been up to? What, what have I been up to sort of, you know, at work or, or just generally? <laughs> well, how's it been treating you, Daisy? How, how has yeah, life yeah. been? Like, if, <laughs> have you been one of these people that's like, oh, I've got this new lease of life. I can write like several books. I can compose a symphony. Or have you been sort of pining for the fjords, that sort of thing? Um, so, well, I'm, I mean, I live in a big city. I'm a city girl, I'm a Londoner. So I suppose I've, I've, I've not really missed the... the the green fields because I probably don't miss them normally. Um, I've been doing a lot of running. I run a lot anyway, so I've had time to run. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of reading, which is nice, which is something I do anyway. So it has been really odd, hasn't it? It's been, it's just been very unusual. I feel like nothing in my life has really prepared me for it. But yeah, I mean, in lots of ways, I know I'm very lucky, so I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and complain. I've been doing lots of reading, but I've been reading weird things, like things I wouldn't have mm-hmm. thought to read. I've been, um, what well, I've got the, the abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago, and I'm absolutely, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, enthralled by it. And it's not something yeah. I would have thought to read otherwise. But yeah, like... yeah. So I tell you a, a thing I'm, I really like before lockdown. There's this sort of little sort of literary magazine called Slightly Foxed, yeah. In, and it, and it does all these quite offbeat reading recommendations. And I have been kind of working my way through some of those um so that's been quite fun and um uh i read a really good uh set of war diaries by um uh someone called hermione ramfoley uh which were just her diaries of like working for secretaries for lots of uh, generals in the war in the middle east so yeah i've been reading kind of a few a few things that maybe i wouldn't necessarily have read or found the time for um so that's been nice yeah it's, it's been nice to sort of uh yeah, read and, and, and get into some books and, and do some, some long runs. Um, so, yeah, there's definite, definite sort of nice things about it, yeah. One of the things I've obviously been reacquainting myself with mm-hmm. is Teachers versus Tech, mm-hmm. uh, your, your excellent book on teachers and tech, which I don't know. I, I can't figure out for you whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the whole remote learning, because, like, obviously it dropped. Was it March, I think it dropped. Mm. And, uh, I think, yeah, yeah, my book was published a week before lockdown, I think, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah. of course, you might think, yeah. well, that would bury a book. But mm. actually, um, mm. like we're all dealing with tech, like all of a sudden, mm. even the most reticent uh, chalk and talkers are having to peer at their kids through little tiny cameras, and we're all having to deal with this stuff. <laughs> and we're all thinking, wow, yeah. what's, what's this like? How's this supposed to work? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't know how that's gone for you. Have you had much like sort of people coming to you about the remote learning side of things? Yeah. So I think a, lot, a few people have said the book has kind of helped them in a way. Yeah, they hadn't anticipated when they bought it that it was going to be kind of more relevant uh, in, 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 in a more immediate way than they'd expected. And I, I wrote the book clearly before lockdown. So I wrote the book uh, without knowing any of this was going to happen. Um, and I, I guess what I also realised is I think the first few weeks after schools closed, everyone was very much just about, I think, emergency remote learning. 
So it was just about, oh my goodness, like what is my login? How do I get my kids a login? <laughs> um, how do I contact them? What, yes. what is this Microsoft Teams? You know, it was it was all very, very, I think, very handy. We were all we were all reading Doug Lamont's blog. We we're like, oh, what's he say about yeah. this? Yeah, he yeah, must yeah, know yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> he must know something. Exactly. And then I think after those first couple of weeks, maybe people have had a bit more time to step back and think a bit more and think, oh, hang on, this is the best thing we should be doing. So I think now people are, are getting the chance to sort of think about it in, in a bit more depth. Um, and, and, you know, look, one of the messages of the book is we can't afford to ignore technology. One of the things I say is just because technology has had some real disasters in the education sphere, it's obviously got so much potential. You can't afford to give up on it. And, and I think actually what this crisis has shown is you can't afford to give up on it. We do need uh, to engage with it. But what it's also showing is it's, it's, it's not necessarily easy to get it right either. Yeah, in the, in the last podcast, I was talking to Tom Bennett. And um, I, I, I don't know whether he's older than me or not, but certainly I, I was teaching before he was. And mm. I can remember booking the interactive whiteboard like we had one. Yeah, and uh, this was in Northwest London, and I booked the room because I quite liked it because you could write on it, mm. and you could like save your stuff. Which that to Tom that was like I don't know why you'd want to do that, but I mm. was I was quite into that. But I, I remember like reading Teachers vs Tech. You were like, um, when you left school, this shows that you're obviously much younger than me. When you left school in two thousand and three, the one you you hadn't come across one of these things. And yet, when you rocked up in 2007 mm. to teach, they were ubiquitous. They were like everywhere. And I kind of remember that. I remember, um, I remember that whole sort of process of them suddenly appearing and sort of almost reproducing all over the place. Um, and so I can actually understand why that would have happened between 2003 and 2007. Mm. That would have had that kind of impact. I mean. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that you can invest this kind of money, like it was massive dollars, yeah. uh, sorry, pounds in, in the UK, um, yeah. in this kind of tech. Yeah, people were just using it as a projector. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right about the, that interactive whiteboard saga. And it was really interesting because it's that one of those moments where uh, it was really gratifying that my, my kind of instincts about something really matched up with the data. So my instinct was when I left school, there were no whiteboards. When I started teaching, they were everywhere. And you know what? I put a graph in the first chapter and I'm right. You know, that isn't just me with a rose tinted memory. Uh, when I left school, there was like, you know, a, sort of a fraction of an interactive whiteboard per school. And by the time I started teaching four years later, they, they were, you know, there were sort of, you know, a dozen in every, every school in the country. Um, and so I did feel like I'd just walked into the future. But then, of course, you start using them. And it's not, I'm not necessarily anti-anti-interactive bubbles, but it was just the way they got used. Yes. Which was, they were just used as projectors. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the weird thing for me is, well, I didn't realise for a while the, the big difference in price between a simple projector and an interactive whiteboard. And I think there were a number of teachers who didn't even realise necessarily the interactivity was there. Certainly teachers I taught with who were using them as a glorified you know, projector because that's what they thought they were. And so you look at that and you think, my goodness, the difference in price between a projector with a, a normal whiteboard and an interactive whiteboard is enormous. And yet most people are just using them as a projector. And I actually think projectors are great. Yeah. <laughs> I think having a projector and a board is, is great. And even if you have it on a whiteboard that you can then write on, so you, okay, you can't save your annotations, but you can write on them. So I guess that's one thing, yeah, that just from the start of my teaching career always intrigued me, that you had this very big investment 
that perhaps wasn't as um just just people on the receiving end of it weren't even realizing necessarily well there was a massive investment wasn't there um mm. and i think this is like so i'll always i'll always be happy if politicians are going to commit more money to education always i'll, I'll take it mm -hmm. but i have to say we haven't got a very we're not a very good bet are we the education sector if you're a politician and you're thinking who shall i punt some money to like we haven't got a great track record of spending it on the absolute like things that are going to make the biggest difference and i think it, um interactive one boards was one of those things like um funnily enough now with the remote learning we've sort of come full circle so when we were remote learning we were using teams and as a maths teacher i have to sort of write on the screen uh, while i'm while i'm sort of teaching so i've got various things and i'm writing on the screen and uh, one of the things the kids told us at my place was they really like to be able to go back and they want to be in the lesson. They don't want to watch recorded lessons, but they want to be able to go back. Like if they did in their homework and refresh themselves on like a worked example or something. And so recording lessons is really good. But of course that means that now at school, if you want to do that, I've got to sit at the front of the class on my computer, writing with this tiny little stylus on the screen. And now, and of course many whiteboards, if you've got those set up, you can, you can stand on the mini whiteboard and you can write on the mini. So we're now sort of, we've got these sort of mini whiteboard enabled projectors where we can do that. And we're thinking about whether we could do that, to record lessons and things like that. But the key thing I think is that it's not being driven by the tech. It's being driven by, as you say, like teacher expertise and how can we use this to leverage teacher expertise rather than what, what, buttons can we press and what do they do and what does that look like I, I remember spending a lot of time when back in the day with a um, there's a guy um who ran uh that was history it was like a history thing and he created all these games like fling the teacher did you ever see fling the teacher yeah 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 and okay. he used to spend like five hours creating a quiz and then one kid would come to the front and press a or b or c or d and then another kid would and that was your use of your interactive whiteboard. I mean, that was, and then after a while, you kind of lost interest because that was that was the level of interactivity you could do with it. I mean, you, you, the kids weren't going to be writing on the board or stuff like that. So that's kind of where it went. And I remember when I came to ours, we just had projectors. And mm -hmm. for a while I thought, well, what am I going to do? How's that going to work? Mm -hmm. But of course it works just fine. Because as you say, you just take your board marker out and you just, right on the board because it's projected onto a whiteboard well that's it and i feel like in england we kind of sort of skipped that middle bit of just having projectors <laughs> i feel like we went from blackboards to interactive whiteboards without the bit in between whereas actually i'd say probably um if you were looking at what is the optimal solution it probably is a, a projector um you don't necessarily need the interactivity or you don't need one in every classroom certainly and i think the other interesting thing you know you talk about things being driven by learning needs or driven by by the, the technology I think the interesting thing with interactive whiteboards is they were also promoted as a bit of a, a solution for kind of every subject, every class. And I remember going to training on them that was often quite patchy and it would focus on one specific sort of maths example, which you thought, yeah. well, as an English teacher, I'm not sure how this relates to what I want to do. And as you say, a lot of what pops up in the literature again and again was stuff around um, uh, how, yeah, you would end up calling a kid up to the front of the class. <laughs> and yet, so that, you know, the other 25, are sitting there and actually you know if that's your dominant way of using the whiteboard is that great is that great pedagogy 
so it did feel like you were kind of adapting your pedagogy to, to suit the technology rather than coming up with a technology that would help you deliver the pedagogy you want. And, and that, if there's anything, is a theme of teachers versus tech, that we need to do it, we need to make sure we get that the right way around. And, and I think that's been a problem. And I think if I go you know, bigger on that, I think the bigger problem is that, and this is another theme of the book, is that learning is invisible. So the problem you have, and I have sympathy with politicians here, I'm not trying to have a go at them, but politicians pump a load of money into the education system, they want to see something. <laughs> and I think the thing about interactive whiteboards was they were very impressive. I remember, as I say, like walking into, I, I, felt like I, I felt like I walked into the future. I was like, wow, really, it does this? <laughs> um, and so I think that was something where politicians could point at and say, look. And, and, and it tied in with a thing that the whole, the whole school estate in England at that time did need refreshing. And, and you did have schools in the yeah. late 90s that still had outside toilets or whatever. And, and so the, the fact is everything did need a refresh. And um, I think that the issue is, is that learning is invisible. And just because you have the, 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 the shiny technology, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to cause the learning to happen. And the flip side of that is the things that are often most effective when it comes to technology and learning are things that are not particularly flashy or showy. And it's often what I learned most from reading the book is, I mean, Engelman in Direct Instruction at Secret Engelman talks a bit about the picky, picky detail. And what I find when you look at a lot of online learning programs is that there's ones that can superficially look very similar that when you dig into them have vastly different outcomes and vastly different experiences yeah. because of ways in which they organize content ways in which they sequence it but one of the uh, bits of technology i like the most and talk about a lot is space repetition algorithms which essentially display the content to you in different orders and different patterns depending on whether you've got things right or wrong you can't really see that almost no. and actually if you're a kid or even an adult and you're doing a space repetition program or a non-space repetition one you've got to be pretty alert and it's going to take you a while, even if you are alert to spot which one you're doing. Yeah. So the, the thing is that a lot of the effective things are just, it's not, they, 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 a lot of the effectiveness is invisible sometimes and that makes it hard. Absolutely. And I, I, yeah, I mean the whole school estate was in need of refresh. I remember I taught physics in what was called a Rosler block and Rosler mm -hmm. stood for raising of school leaving age, which is, sometime in the early 70s or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and they built this like prefab out of asbestos just to accommodate these extra kids as a temporary measure in the early 70s and there i was in 2002 or three or whatever trying to teach physics in it and we set up we at the time we did we had these like um practical exams for physics and you have to send them up the night before and we set these up the night before and we came in the morning of the practical exam and it was all ruined because pigeons had got in to the lab. So there was, you can kind of understand totally why politicians at that time were thinking, we need to do something visible. We need to do something that really tells yeah. these kids that they're loved, that they're yeah. cared for. And, but it wasn't necessarily going to be the thing that made the biggest difference. And I think the future can be quite misleading as well, particularly like politicians are quite hooked on the future. But I remember when I was at school in the late 80s, when was it? The late 80s. And uh, we had the BBC microcomputers and they would teach us how to use word processors and the commands to change the text type and how to save the file. And of course, all that is redundant. Like no one needs to know that stuff now. But they thought at the time, 
that because it was like the future and computers are the future, they were teaching stuff that stuff that would be really useful in the future. But of course, the stuff that was really useful wasn't that. It was linear equations. It was basic yeah. grammar that was never taught any. It was you know <laughs> that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. and I think it can that whole yeah. trying to draw back from the future what we should be doing can be quite misleading. I, I write and I write about this a lot, and this is a, a major theme of what I write about. Absolutely, that um, there's kind of a little bit there's something a bit counterintuitive or paradoxical going on, which is that the th nothing dates as fast as the cutting edge. So again, you go back to the eighties. What were the things we all thought were the cutting edge in the eighties? The, what the fax machine microfiche readers um you know uh, or a bit later you know mp3 players whatever uh, you look at all these just within our lifetimes obsolete technologies which people thought were the future and you think well if you'd spent a lot of time on those that a lot of that time is not standing in good stead for the future <laughs> whereas as you say linear equations <laughs> might have been a better bet <laughs> so the paradox is if something's been useful for a couple of thousand years, it's probably going to be useful for the next 50. If something has just been invented, you just don't know. And the other thing is that even if the new things that do end up taking over the world and that do end up being very powerful, they often run on the old stuff. So the modern internet, sure, yeah, that's transformed the world. Um, but that's based on numbers and letters. So the two technologies I come back to, which are so integrated in our life, which we don't think of as technologies, are the alphabet and the number system. And they are technologies. They're inventions. Well, you can argue about numbers, can't you? But yeah, I mean, the alphabet is definitely an invention. We can have a philosophical debate about numbers. Um, but ultimately, these, these are human inventions. They're human technologies. And they're technologies which probably, if you're going to have a bet, and nothing is certain in this life, but if you want to have a bet, these are the technologies that are less likely to go out of fashion. And all the new technologies build on them in one way or another. And that is particularly striking with mathematics, the way that mathematics kind of really invades everything. So you talked about linear equations, but the big one that I would talk about is data science. And people are talking about AI and big data, and you can argue over whether it's overhyped or not. AI is basically, in lots of ways, is statistics, right? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of it which is, is statistics. So you think all those boring things at a school that you think, oh, what's the relevance has this got to the future? That, that's it. That's what's sitting underneath it. So, yeah, this idea that we need to seek out what new things are going to be needed in the future and teach those. Well, we could teach maths and English. I mean, you know, maybe that sounds very, very boring, but <laughs> that's my take on it. Well, I, I, <laughs> um, I, I, I I would like you to take you up on that. One of the things I, mm. obviously I've, I've been reading your stuff for a, a few years. And um, one of the things that strikes me is that you might have the solution to a question that um, uh, has puzzled me like uh, over, over a period of time. So um, you talk in um, Teacher versus Tech uh, a little bit about teaching writing. And I don't think I've seen anyone talk about it in quite this way before. As a, as a maths teacher, but also with some kind of responsibility for kind of moving the whole school. I'm like a head of research. So I've got to try and help move the, the, the whole school forward in some way. But obviously, I'm completely out of my depth when it comes to things like English or history. Or what do you do? How does that, what does that look like? And 
you talk in teachers versus tech and i think this is a combination of a, a few things you've talked about before and you can certainly trace it back to your uh, previous book on assessment about um the teaching of writing and you put it in a way that i, I think is quite interesting that um you talk about there's a rules way of teaching writing so this is a narrative text so we need to know the features of narrative text and these are the rules and blah 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 and this is what you do and then you talk about the immersion um, approach to writing so we're just going to write we're going to write we're going to write we're going to write we're going to get better at writing and these are often held in opposition to each other but um, your take is that neither of those is actually the right way to think about teaching writing and drawing on uh, someone like Zig Engelman in his work in direction instruction you propose that it's it's a slightly different model that we need to think about could you uh, talk about yeah. that a little bit for us yeah I'm really glad you picked up on that because that was a really important part of the book for me and in some ways not necessarily massively about technology but it was really important and um, uh, probably hasn't sort of got that much attention but for, for me it was really important and one of the things I, I think about a lot and Funny enough, I've done a few insets on it with a few a few schools who are doing interesting things and, and they've found it to be really important as well. So, yeah, ultimately, you, you put it really well there that essentially um, a lot of the debate in education often it's like, well, we can teach things like writing through just doing some writing or we can teach it through teaching kids the rules. Um, uh, and those are kind of the two poles. And actually, the argument I make is they're not really two poles. They're kind of almost two sides of the same bad coin. And there's a, there's other way, there's a different way of doing it. And, and the other thing I talk about, I don't know if I say this in the book, but I, I'm also, when, it, when you think about the right way to teach anything, I'm often reminded of that line of Tolstoy's, you, you know, that, that every, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, there are many, many ways to get something wrong, okay? There, there are many ways to go wrong. There's normally not that many ways to get something right. <laughs> and that's what I think with a lot of uh, approaches of, um, of, of teaching as well. You, you, can, you can really, it's just possible to, to, to you know, have lots of ways to go wrong. So. Um, the way I like to think of it, yeah, is, is as pathways to a goal you want to reach. And yeah, the immersion approach simply says do lots of writing and you'll learn. And the rules approach, as you say, maybe rules here, the rules of narrative text, but even also when teaching grammar, things that say, well, rules, you know, a verb is a doing word. Absolutely. That really struck me when I read yeah. your, what you talked yeah. about verbs, yeah. that I yeah. really understood what you, were, what you meant for, like, a, yeah. I, got, I got the point of what you're trying to say then, because you oh. gave, interestingly, you gave an example, which helped me understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, Do you want exactly, to... exactly. So uh, and let me give you an example that really I hope brings this home. One of the, I mean, I, we, I should point out, I work now for No More Marking. We assess lots and lots of children's writing. So over the last um, couple of years, I think we've assessed about a quarter of a million pieces of primary age writing. And one of the big issues you will see in, in the writing, and I think a lot of teachers, you won't need to, to have done all that assessment to know this, is one of the frequent sort of things children really struggle with is run-on sentences. So they will write sentences that um, don't have a full stop. Um, and, and also what you see quite a bit is often they'll write sentences where um, they won't begin the sentence with a capital letter. Okay, so not, not all the time, but some of the time, not every child invariably all the time is, is starting a sentence with a capital letter. Um, and this is really interesting because in my experience teaching, I was a secondary teacher, so teaching 11 year olds, I, in my experience, any class of 11 year olds, if you say to them, what do you begin a sentence with? I would say 9900% of them will say you begin a sentence with a capital letter. Like every kid knows that. How many of them reliably use a capital letter at the beginning of every sentence? Many, many, many fewer. <laughs> and I say that now not just from my experience of teaching 11 year olds, but from this experience of assessing lots and lots of writing. 
So what you have there going on there is what I talk or others have called a knowing doing gap. That you know you've got to start a sentence with a capital letter, but you're not reliably doing it. And people see this all the time. We see this all the time in a number of subjects, right? And I'm sure you can think of your subjects where you see that thing going on. But what people do, they see that issue and then they think, oh, well, the way to solve this is we need more doing. So get the kids to do more writing. And actually, if they just do more writing or more reading, they'll pick up the rules naturally. And I totally understand why people think that. Because when you just try and teach those rules, like a sentence begins with a capital letter, as you see, it doesn't kind of transfer. Yeah. But the just do writing thing doesn't work either. It's a reasonable hypothesis, but it's bold. Right. So people are right to say, hang on a minute, this teaching the rules approach has got problems. But you then say, oh, I'll just get them to read and they'll pick it up. That doesn't work either. It overwhelms working memory. There's so many different things to think about. It's very hard to infer often from natural real world occurring contexts to make the right inference. So what you need is something different and a different route to becoming a good writer and reliably using a capital letter and knowing what a verb is. And that is where I think some of the direct instruction elements are very important. And I think direct instruction in this sense, we often think of as being about the pedagogy of direct instruction. So the call and response. And all that is very important, but yes. But in a sense, what I'm writing about in this chapter, the thing that I'm interested in is, is less the pedagogy, although I do think that's very important, but more the organisation of examples. Yeah. And I think that's something where sometimes the focus and some of the controversies about the pedagogy obscure the fact that Engelman in particular, but a lot of other direction structure theorists, are doing something very interesting around the organisation of examples. Because they are essentially trying to organise examples in such a way that you will infer the right thing from them. So what they're doing in, 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 in that, and, and, and the, the, the Engelman programme I recommend you take a look at is Expressive Writing 1 and 2 for this particular thing is, let's go back to that example of we were talking about verbs. So you can teach a kid a verb's a doing word. And good luck with that, right? <laughs> because if you tell them a verb's a doing word, there's a number of errors that spring from that. And I give the examples in the book. And one is, you give them the sentence, I run to the shops, what's the verb? They say run, brilliant. You give them the sentence, I, um, I go for a run to the shops, or I went for a run to the shops. And you say, what's the verb? And they say, run. And you say, no, it's went. And they go, how can went be a verb? It's not a doing word. So what Engelman does is he's really hardline in expressive writing. He doesn't use definitions at all. And he actually doesn't even use the subject terms. He doesn't use the word verb. And I actually think that's a bit too hardline. I wouldn't go that far. I think there is a use for labels. But he doesn't use the word verb. What he does is he sets up sentences with verbs in. So he gives you some examples of like five sentences, here's the verb. Now he gives you another five, find the verb. And the, the fact is, so, but, but those sentences, what's deceiving about it, and this goes back to the visible, invisible point, those sentences have been very carefully chosen. So he hasn't just thrown a load of random sentences from a book on a page. He hasn't just come up with some at the top of his mind. He's deliberately chosen them so that you've got sentences where the verb is in different positions in the sentence. You've got sentences where the verb's in the past tense, where it's in the present tense. You've got sentences, all the different possible kind of combinations that you can have. Um, so you're not getting misled into thinking, well, the verb's only the second, the second yeah. word in a sentence. Uh, and he's doing that for all of these things. And then he's spacing the practice so that things are recurring after a few lessons. So... What you're getting, if you go back to that initial sort of dichotomy we had, which was you're going to learn through immersion in real world examples or you're going to learn through rules. What I think you're seeing with a direct instruction program is you're learning 
through carefully constructed, carefully chosen examples. That's the difference. And, and, and that's not like either of those polls. No. It's just different. And, and doesn't it make you think about all those teachers who don't have much of a curriculum to follow, who get up early or stay up late, Google verbs worksheet, and then you think, well, actually, how's that going to compare with this program that someone thought about, tested out, trialed? When I was reading that section, it really brought it home to me because I often have this problem with maths because maths doesn't always translate very well into English. A good example is set theory and union versus insect of two sets. And kids and teachers, they all fall over. They start talking about ands and ors. And, and you can express either as an and or an or, depending on exactly how you phrase it. And it gets very confusing. And so a few years ago, um, probably about eight years ago, I ditched all of them trying to explain what intersect and union meant. And I just gave, gave loads of questions, essentially, mini whiteboards, hold it up, shade in union, shade in intersect, not A, union, B, all this sort of stuff. And eventually, at, like after grinding through about 25 of these mini whiteboard tasks, kids would start to get on top of it. But at no point have I actually defined what these things mean, apart from just giving a few examples. And it reminded me of that when you were talking about verbs in Teachers versus Tech. And I thought, actually, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. It, it's interesting because you can't necessarily take one subject and apply it directly to another subject. I think that's a mistake that a lot of generic um, professional development makes. It's like, well, this will just look the same everywhere. We're just going to roll out this program, whole school, everyone's going to do um, building learning power or whatever it is. And we're all going to do this and it's going to be marvellous. And that doesn't work. But it doesn't mean that you can't get insights from other areas that you can apply to what you're doing. Um, but it's just that they're a little bit more, they're not as obvious always. And you have to kind of think them through. And sometimes when you hear about them, it doesn't really gel. And then you go away and later you connect it to something and, um, and you come back and, oh, yeah, that makes some sort of sense. But it was interesting to me that when I was reading that, I was thinking, but this is like a maths example, your verbs example, which was just to me like a maths example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So we made a couple of good points. So the first one about genericism, I agree. And my whole, my whole second book, Making Good Progress, is all about how those generic grids, that, you know, describe, explain, persuade, evaluate, that you apply to every subject, they just don't work. Um, and th th the funny thing is they don't even work within a subject, let alone cross subjects, because even within a subject, I always say, you know, a slight manipulation in the terms of a question makes it more or less difficult. You can't just categorise things into these discrete, you know, um, this, this is a describe so it's easy, this is an evaluate so it's hard. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, but I do think, you, you know, it is interesting to look for where there are links across subjects. And one interesting way I think of, of linking across subjects or thinking about different subjects is to think that, a lot of subjects, every subject often will have a vocabulary and a grammar. Um, and some subjects are vocab heavy and some are grammar heavy. And maths for me is like a grammar heavy subject, by which I mean it is, um, it kind of is just a set of not very many rules, really, that you just need to learn in so many different contexts. Whereas a vocab heavy subject is a subject where there's just a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you might say like history is a vocab heavy subject. Yeah. There's just stuff. <laughs> and the interesting thing about English, as it is taught in England, and this isn't the way that languages are taught in every country, but 
the, the school subject of English is essentially an amalgam of both because English language is kind of a bit more like grammar and English literature is a bit more like the vocab. So it's a, a bit of a bit of both, you know. Um, and I think that is it's not perfect, but that's a useful framework for thinking about things. And I've certainly found that lots of overlaps between teaching English grammar and teaching maths because it's about very complex, often rules that are not well expressed in words. So defining a verb, you know, what you just said about set theory, the words are not well designed to describe what you're trying to get across. And I think this is also an issue because I think we go back to your previous point about explaining. Sometimes we really privilege explanation. And one of the things I find interesting is some things that's really hard to explain in words. And that doesn't mean you can't communicate them. So this is why I think there's another issue is that I genuinely think there are some things you can't communicate in words. That doesn't mean I think you can't communicate them. And I think people sometimes hear the phrase, you can't communicate this in words to be a, mean, oh, it's all very subjective and relativist. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that there's other ways of communicating it. And in a sense, that's the whole point of maths, right? You wouldn't need maths if you could communicate everything in words. It's a, it's a language. It's doing something that you can't do in words. So, and I think there are things, as I say, with, with grammar that are similar. I think it's really hard to define a verb in words. I think it's hard to define the definition of a lot of words in words, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> the words are referring to concepts that you then define with other words. And, and actually, you know, it rapidly becomes quite circular. So, I mean, all the things I'm circling around here is, is tacit knowledge. Yeah. This idea by, by Michael Polanyi that we know things, we know, we know, we know things that we can't tell. And I do think what well, the implication this has for teaching is m more use of examples. And that was certainly something I hit upon when I was teaching grammar, that you can come up with a beautifully crafted, very succinct and pithy explanation. It's no good for teaching. No. That's not actually what you need. You might need it in a rule book, yeah. but it's not how you teach. You or teach. in an academic paper to press one right. of your peers. But you, teach with, you teach with examples. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 been a really key key insight for me, um, and I, and I think I'm not knocking explanation. You still need in, you know the explanation in in class, and you need to have that. But I sometimes think personally in my 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 teaching career, I probably spent too much time striving for the right explanation when I'd have been better off looking for the right example and also looking for the right example spaced over time. I think there's something satisfying about an explanation. I think a kid thinks yeah. they understand something, um, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean they can apply it. And perhaps this is why we have this constantly, like I do this thing um, where at the start of every lesson, I put a box on the board. It's an old Dylan Williams thing, I think. I reckon that's where I got it from. And uh, any homework questions the students have struggled with, they write it in the little box. So they'll go, you know, two, five, mm. And I'll look at it, I'll go, question five? Really? You struggled on five? Really? I thought I explained that really well, the stuff that question five is about. But of course, you have to have it constantly thrown back to you that, mm -hmm. that you've, you've sort of failed, really. You, you might have had this beautiful analogy and this wonderful explanation, but the kid can't do the question on the stuff. And it's really important to design those mechanisms in. And perhaps explanation is part of that because I explain something, I feel like that's good, kids get it. They mm. think, oh yeah, I understood that, I understood that explanation, mm. they feel they've got it. 
and were sort of conspiring against application uh, through that kind of process. Um, on, a, on the assessment thing that you're talking about, I remember, and it really it hit me when I read um, Making Good Progress um, about the rubrics. And the, when I read the chapter on the rubrics, I don't think you even called them rubrics. Did you call them rubrics? I can't remember. You I think I, that chapter I called descriptor-based assessment, yeah. but yeah, rubrics, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I remember sending that around to some colleagues because it must have been 2012 or something. I went up to Queensland and there's a guy called Roy Sadler in Queensland yeah, yeah. and he was talking and he gave this really powerful presentation because he had and I forget which way round it was which is really annoying and I wish I could tell this story properly but it was it was either a set of uh, year eight writing descriptors and he took presented them to us and he said actually no these are for um, undergraduate writing yeah. or it was the other way around they were really undergraduate writing descriptors and then he said actually no these are for year but we all believed whatever he put out first mm -hmm. We all yeah. completely believed that these were descriptors for whatever he said it was originally. And then when he sort of pivoted and said, no, it's the other thing, oh, oh gosh. And it, yeah. that brought home to me a whole load of things about genericism, yeah. which I hadn't possibly yeah. twigged before, that we often talk at this very highfalutin way mm -hmm. where we think everyone understands what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, they do, but we're not actually getting into the nuts and bolts of what is important in this particular context with these particular kids with these specific examples yeah that's a great example of Roy Sadler and Roy Sadler's written a lot of very good things on that and I cite a lot of them in Making Good Progress the other really funny example similar to that not quite the same is um, by Christine Council the UK history educator yeah. and she does a great one where um, in the early days of national curriculum levels she would take all the history descriptors cut them up and ask people to put them back in order <laughs> You know, there were, there were sort of 12 of them in those days. Yeah. And of course, you know, you would have groups of experienced history teachers and every group would put them back in totally different orders. So this approach is, is, is you know, and, and the other thing is, it's not just me kind of having a pop at it. You can prove it all statistically that it doesn't work because you get people to mark with them. You get people to put them in order. You get people to use them and they, they don't come up with anything that is particularly reliable. So you can prove this. It's not yeah. just me saying, oh, I don't like it when it's all very vague. <laughs> I can prove to you that people do not use these tools in a reliable fashion, that they do not have a consistent shared meaning. So you need something that's more contained, that isn't quite as broad, that is more specific to... Well, yes and no. So in some ways you can go the other way. So what we do with comparative judgment is we have one unbelievably broad criterion, yeah. the better script. Yeah. So you have two pieces of writing on screen and you say, which is the better script? So you can go one way and just go, right, yeah. I have one criterion, very, very broad. And, and weirdly, that gets you much better reliability than having this very pernickety rubric. When it comes to teaching, though, then you need to go the other way and have real precision and detail around exactly what you're expecting to teach and what you're expecting students to understand. And that's what I talk about in making a progress as being the difference between formative and summative. For me, the formative thing you want to do formatively is be very precise and very picky and very specific about what do these students need to know at this moment in time? How will I know they know it? How will I know they've um, know it for the long term? And actually, with summative assessment, you want to go in the opposite direction. You want to go very broad, very big and ask big questions and ask questions that also give you a distribution of responses um, and ask things that are, that are quite complex and challenging. 
Um, and, and the interesting thing about that is culturally it cuts across, I think, our conception of what formative and summative is. So I feel just sort of culturally people feel formative is the nice, cuddly thing yeah. and summative is the nasty, oppressive thing. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of what I'm saying is, but you want to be using quite pernickety, precise assessments for formative and the big, open, creative ones for summative. So I think something that that's something that people um, maybe found, you know. I, I, I think in my fairly limited experience of working with, as I say, I'm not a, an English teacher, so I don't tend to work with rubrics. There's a little bit of uh, where we have to do sort of um, project work and stuff like that where uh, I've come across them. But uh, I find that comparative judgment allows you to just keep moving the playing field. So if you, um, if you design a rubric, what you're doing is you're sampling from the, the properties of um, expert performance and you're saying, well, an expert performance, one of the features is this, and one of the features is this, and one of the features is this, and then you look for those things. But of course, because it's, it's, not, it's not something you just bring out when you assess, it's in your mind as you're teaching. So you then teach to do those specific things. So you end up with all these work that shows these three features and none of the other things that are features of expert performance. But if you do that, and then you do a comparative judgment, you'll still end up saying, well, yeah, but this one's better than that one. Why? Well, it's got this other feature that we hadn't thought about when we designed the, when we did the sampling from the feature of expert performance in the first place. If I'm making any sense at all. Yeah. No, Greg, you've got a great diagram which illustrates what you've just said. Um, and I love that diagram. It's really good because it just shows that a rubric um, is only ever, as you say, sampling from what you would like to see in an essay. And I think the other thing that is that it goes back to the tacit knowledge point. No rubric can ever fully capture everything you would want to see in an essay because of that tacit knowledge points there will always be things that people can recognize and think's important and agree on because we know with comparative judgment they will agree on it but those things are very hard to capture in writing on a rubric to say this is what we expect to see so the problem with a rubric is not only is it not reliable but it also ends up distorting instruction because you end up focusing only on those things that are in the rubric and not on the things which are not in the rubric but which are very important which you might not even know until you recognize it because again right. and they might as, as i say there might be things that you do know and you do recognize and you do agree on but you can't put into words so for example so, you know sophisticated use of vocabulary so we can all agree there is something around good use of vocabulary but it can be quite hard to specify exactly what <laughs> you mean by that whereas when you see two pieces of writing and one is using a lot of long words but just shoehorning them in in a way that is not quite working yeah. and another one is just using them in a way that is is much more subtle and makes more sense and is appropriate we know that when we see it but how do you describe that in a room well, you end up saying things like uh if you want to get really precise you end up saying things like uh four words of um eight letters or maybe you'll say tier two words or, and then but then you start getting Again, people start shoehorning them in, in a exactly. way that, oh, that's not quite what we wanted. That's, yeah. Right, right. And you get the issue as well. It's the same with even things like spelling. Like you think, well, all right, can't we just agree everyone should spell correctly, spell everything correctly? Isn't that straightforward enough? And the problem you get then is, is the impact it has on, the incentive it has is students will use less difficult, less ambitious vocabulary mm. in order to avoid any misspellings. Yeah. So then you're in the dilemma where you might have a beautifully written piece that uses one very difficult word and misspells it. 
And you've got another piece, which is very mechanical, not nearly as good, kind of lots of issues with it, but it spells everywhere correctly because they're all very basic. Are you seriously going to say that that's the better piece or even that it's the better spelling? Because it, the, the, the words they've chosen to choose to spell are much, much easier. Yeah. And that's why I would say if you want to be precise, set a precise task. If you want to know if your students, you know, how they're doing on spelling, give them all the same 50 words to spell. Don't give an open task to assess these very thin closed criterion. If you want to assess those, which I think you should, <laughs> do it with something that suits that. Yeah, don't assess the ability to do corner kicks by playing games. Of right, absolutely. So, and I think, and that's one of the, again, the central things of making good progress, that what is your purpose in assessing? What are you trying to find out? If you want to find out about how students can spell, set them a spelling test. If you want to find out about how well they can write, spelling is one aspect of that, but it is bound up with lots of other aspects of it. And if you're setting an open task, you've got to allow for some trade-offs between those different, different features. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think clarity about, like, I think too many, certainly the school, schools I've worked in, and I'm not being rude about anyone. I mean, I think we're all guilty of this to a certain extent. There's like a, a sausage machine and we do assessment. We're going to do an assessment mm -hmm. gonna, we're gonna, and we grind through it. But I'm not sure we always think what it's for and what we're trying to do with it. We're, we're trying to do, um, we're trying to do that a little bit more in my place where we're thinking we've got these things we call component tasks. Um, and we might have even got that from you possibly. Um, and, uh, and, and, and those are very tight and very focused on learning a particular thing about what the kids know. Um, mm -hmm. And then, so we call them that because we know that that's what that means. And then we call other things something else. We even have what we call banal prompts. So one of the um, one of the things that our kids have to do uh, for standardised assessments is is write in response to some kind of banal prompt about like yeah. the the door or um, uh, everyone should have pets or whatever. So we, we yeah. get them to sort of we and so we just we have it in our head what it is we're we're trying to think that they're doing with those things. Um, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, we did get we did get the component testing from you, didn't we? I think potentially, yeah, yeah. Something I talk about, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the reasons, Daisy, you are such a hero to a certain group of social media savvy teachers <laughs> is, of course, yeah. your um, was it twenty thirteen book, um, Seven Myths About Education, um, yeah. and I just like before I ask you to talk a little bit about the genesis of that and how that. That came into me, which I'm really fascinated because I don't think I don't think we've ever talked about that. I'd be interested to know. Um, just for people who are listening who maybe haven't read it or are not sure about what it is, you take apart, you identify seven key myths um, about that you think are prevalent in education. Now, anyone could maybe do this, but what you then do is you systematically document them. Now, I was reading this. In it was probably I probably 2013 or 2014. It wouldn't be long after it came out. And at that time, I'd moved to Australia in 2010, yeah. and I was reading it. And a lot of the documentary evidence you use comes from Ofsted, which is the yeah. English Schools Inspectorate. And I was reading this book, thinking, "Yeah, this is this is awesome. This is a really good book." But a lot of the evidence comes from this quite parochial inspection body, 
I'm yeah. not sure whether to share this with my Australian colleagues or not. I'm not sure whether they get it because we yeah. don't have Ofsted here. They yeah. might not understand yeah. what it's on about. Yeah. So very tentatively, I sort of gave this book mm. out to a few people. Mm. Have, a, have a read of that. And they got it straight away. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it didn't matter that the evidence you were drawing from was Ofsted. They yeah. had exactly that from <laughs> their experience of teacher education, from yeah. the department, from whoever had been giving them professional development. They'd had exactly that same uh, set of myths presented to them in exactly that way. And I remember when it came out, it was quite controversial. Um, probably not so much now. Um, but there was quite a lot of resistance to it, um, that, that uh, these myths were, were straw men, even though you yeah. quite meticulously documented mm -hmm. them, um, that you were being divisive, setting up um, mm -hmm. polls, and we were supposed to take mm -hmm. sides and all this sort of stuff. Whereas actually for many teachers, I think reading that, it was more of a sense of relief mm -hmm. that you'd articulated something mm -hmm. that we'd, um, that we'd, we were struggling to get our heads around. We, it was, it was, we'd, we'd all been through the early 2000s period where these myths that you identified had been quite prevalent in education. Um, and something didn't sit well with a lot of us, but you then came out and articulated it and we were, we, we recognised that as, uh, as relevant to our experience. So I've waffled a little bit about it, but it is a very important book, so it does deserve a little bit of an intro. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about what led up to you writing that, what you were thinking, some of the reaction, that sort of thing, please? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting what you were saying about people understanding it, even in a different context, because one of the things I worried when I was writing it, so I'll tell you a little bit of the, yeah, the genesis of it. I taught for, I did teach first. I taught for, for, for three years in my first school. And yeah, I, I felt like a lot of the things you say, there was just a general sense of kind of uneasiness about some things that were going on. And um, I took a year actually to do a master's, um, not a master's in, in education, in, in, in literature. And, and then I had more time to think about these things. So that was when I, I kind of started writing it. And I started blogging as well. And one of the big pushbacks I would get when I was talking or blogging about these articles was straw, the straw man argument. And people would say, well, this is a straw man. Nobody's saying you shouldn't teach knowledge. Nobody's saying you shouldn't teach to the class, apart from the fact that everyone was saying you shouldn't teach knowledge at all for longer than five seconds, right? So the problem I had was I had to prove to people, no, they really are saying you shouldn't teach knowledge. They really are saying this. And weirdly, that was like the thing that I had to spend the most time on, was proving that everything that was happening was happening. Um, and that was where the Ofsted thing came in. I was like, well, I need some evidence. I need to show people this is not a straw man. And that was where the offstage thing came in. And actually, uh, sharing your point about it being kind of parochial, that was what I was worried about. And I remember writing it thinking, who is going to be interested in reading this book about a bunch of Ofsted reports? And the weird thing about it is, has been the number of teachers from other countries who've never heard of Ofsted, who say, yes, that is exactly what I see in my country. And that is astonishing because that shows you these things, they go beyond Ofsted. Like, I'm not trying to make Ofsted like the bogeyman here. And I think fair play to Ofsted, they have reformed. Yeah. The issue I'm trying to take on is it's an issue of ideas. And what I find really interesting is these ideas, it's almost like they're just in the ether. They're out there. And, and what I find remarkable is the number of different countries with, because we get so agitated in our own countries about our own policy, uh, policy situation and our own specific issues. And of course we should do. 
But what I find so interesting is you've got something going on in Australia to do with assessment in one way, and in England they do it in one way, and in Scotland in another way, and in Canada in another way. And yet in all those countries, what you are seeing is a really similar set of underlying beliefs, regardless of like the policy superstructure on top of them. So for me, what I was trying to get at was, was these root ideas. These root ideas which are sitting underneath all of these different policy manifestations, however they may be. And, and it, unless you tackle those, you will never get the policy right. And, and people don't realise that they have those ideas. And they right. don't realise that they're signed up to an ideology. It's like water to the fish, right? Yeah. And I, I open the book with a quotation by Keynes where I say, um, uh, practical men, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, I can't, I can't remember off the head, but he says something like practical men who think they're being very pragmatic and think they're just engaged with the issues of the day, they're just repeating the words of long defunct economists. We're all theoreticians, whether we like it or not. It's just whether we know we're theoreticians or not, okay? Every practical action you take is based on an implicit theory. It's just yeah, whether you, you want you, to... You it. have an ideology, whereas I just go on common sense. It's one of these irregular verbs, you know. Uh, you're an ideological maniac. Yeah. I'm just doing what makes sense. Yeah. 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 So, um, and it really changed the landscape, uh, I think, um, Seven Myths, because uh, before that, I mean, I'd only I'd been recently. I'd started blogging in 2012 or something, so mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was pretty sh soon after I started blogging, and it actually gave um, those of us who were taking a slightly. I think my first blog was about. Um, I'd read something by Howard Gardner that said that you could mm -hmm. always just look stuff up, and so yeah, yeah. we needed to not teach the knowledge, but the ways of critiquing. And I and it didn't set well with me, and I I referenced something from William. And then all of a sudden, you, you, seven myths arrived, and you open it, and you're like, yeah, that's true. This is it. This is setting out in detail what these myths are. They're real, and people believe in them. And it almost made it harder for um, that kind of obfuscation um, to, to, to work anymore. And I think that's probably why you had quite a, a strong reaction to it. I mean, do you remember? Do, do you remember what that was like at the time? Was it a, a fair yeah? No, you're right. It was. It was a, a strong reaction, and it was controversial. And I think you're right. People have forgotten that now. But um, certainly, I felt there was quite an element of nastiness about about a lot of the reaction. And um, yeah, it's interesting to reflect on that now because I think the um, the intellectual climate has changed. Um, but certainly, back uh, well, I started blogging. I think back in in 2010, and then the book came out in 2013. And yeah, the, the whole environment was, was, it was very hostile. But they had, they, <laughs> the, the, the people who subscribed to yeah. these myths, I suppose, who were everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I remember like in 2005, you'd go to a conference or you go to your training at your LEA. I mean, this is, this was the, these were the people, this is what they believed. And they had enormous power because in Britain at that time, there was a massive investment going into education. And where was that investment going? Well, quite a lot of it was going into employing these people to tell mm. teachers um, mm. how to teach better. I remember mm. we had um, the SSAT did this thing called the Four Deeps, and I remember going to a training on the Four Deeps. I don't know if you ever came across the Four Deeps, and I went to this training on the Four Deeps. I'm thinking, what? I just can't make head nor I just can't make sense of this. But at the time, um, and we had another one. We had um, we had someone come and it. Uh, to talk to us about building learning power at this one school that I worked at. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we were in our department teams, and you can imagine I was in the science department, so I'm with all the yeah. science teachers, and up comes this picture of a brain with resilience mm -hmm. written on it. And, and we all knew, like, we were all making fun of it, 
but yeah. we didn't have we just thought it was odd or strange or funny we just mm -hmm. didn't, we didn't have the arguments we didn't have the um the the evidence we couldn't explain exactly what was wrong with it and by the time that seven myths comes out of course we've got something we can point to and can talk to people yeah, about. Yeah. it started a wider conversation so it was a really important um book days yeah i hope you are aware of that <laughs> well thank you that's very kind and i remember being in insets like that i'm um, not not necessarily that one but uh similar ones and uh so <laughs> i think one of the nice things about the last few years has been i think there's still stuff like that out there but it's harder to I think it's probably harder to, to get away with stuff like that now because there will be somebody in the room who will put their hand up and say, hang on a minute, what about X, Y, Z? And that's not, that's not about me. You know, that's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole sort of movement of people. And it's, it's just so great that there is more of that out there now. And, and I look at what people get now when they train to teach and it is a world away from what I got. And, and I think that is fantastic. Well, we're on our way to being a profession, aren't we? We're still not in charge of ourselves really mm -hmm. we're still a bit done too rather than but we're on our way and i see that as a as a step in the process okay just to finish up then daisy um what's 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 on the horizon for you what are you obviously you've had um teachers versus tech published what's mm -hmm. what's in your thinking what's happened where's no more marking going and what what what's the what's in the pipeline so i think the thing i'm very interested about is the thing we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about which is writing yeah. So how do you improve writing? What do you do to, to make it better? What are the kind of the, the ways that it's, it's uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the errors students make, the, the, the traps they fall into, how the ways we can, we can get around that, do it better, or what are the things you need to do? So two things I look at really closely are vocabulary and sentence structure. I think those are key. They're not the only things, but I think they're really, really important. So a lot of time thinking about that thinking about what can we do, what are the ways you can improve the, the, the teaching and learning of vocab, teaching and learning of sentence structure, and all the time just keeping that focus as well on measurement, because I think, again, you can talk about a profession, what makes a profession. Uh, professions mature and develop, actually, as, 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 as measurement often improves and develops. And a measurement is intrinsic often to innovation and improvement. And I know measurement sometimes, particularly assessment, it can seem quite arid and a bit divorced from what it is you're trying to do, but ultimately, without some kind of measurement, you've got no idea whether what you're doing is improving or not and make, making, making a difference. So for me, it's all about how do you get improvements in those aspects of writing and how do you make sure that all the time you know whether you're making the improvements because you've got well-designed, sensitive assessment measures that, that are letting you know and are letting you change course when you need to and letting you realise whether you're reaching that end goal. So that's, that's what it is for me, you know, writing that's a big thing at the minute and um yeah the, the work at the market with assessment of writing and improving writing do you think do you think we need more sentence level work extending like further into the 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 sort of uh, progress like i'm sorry i'm not making much sense here but it's it seems to me that we jump from sentence level work quite quickly into extended bits of writing do you think we need to work on sentence level work a bit longer in the process a bit more yeah. over learning of that definitely i think i think the sentence is everything you really do i think you've got to get that sentence right it is the building block so when i talked earlier about breaking things down what do you break them down into um do you break them down into for example one interesting debate is do you break it down into the level of the genre or do you break it down into the level of the sentence or do you break it down to the level of a paragraph so i've had you know discussions with teachers where they say to me look we do break down writing. We're not just teaching in immersion. We break 
down and we teach different genres. We'll teach persuasive rhyme, we'll teach creative rhyme, we'll teach this, we'll teach that. And that's what I'm saying about different ways of breaking things down. Um, I think the better way to break it down is to sentence the sentence level. So for me, that's it. But the only way you kind of prove that, I don't think you necessarily prove that through research or, or argument, you prove that through example. You have to design a writing program that teaches in one, one way and one teaches in another and, and see which is having the, the biggest impact. So, but I certainly feel the sentence level is the one where at the moment the evidence stacks up for. And the approach out there that's really good, which I know a lot of people use, and I know you like, Greg, is the writing revolution. Yeah. So the writing revolution is a US, US-based non-profit organisation. They're fantastic. Um, they do really, really good stuff at that sentence level. And what I love about what they do is... They also, I've talked a lot here about verbs and capital letters, but what they do a lot of as well, which is so crucial, is when you're teaching writing, it is about meaning. Yeah. It's not just about getting the capital letter right and getting the verb in the right place. So they do a bunch of lovely activities. I mean, their really famous one is Because But So, yeah. where you have a sentence, a short sentence, and you have to extend it using a because, a but, and a so. And what is great about that is making you think about meaning. It's making you think, well... You know, the Great Fire of London happened in 1666 because, but, so, and yeah. I'm going to finish it with something different each time yeah. based on the different meanings of because, but, and so. Whereas I think, to go back to your earlier point about genericism, what you see a lot of with a lot of teaching writing is that this idea that there's this generic class of connectives. Yeah. And, and a connective is almost like a, just a bit of glue that you can insert and you can jam two sentences together with any old connective. Yeah. And as a result of that, you get students, I think, just shoehorning in words like nevertheless and moreover and however, without really knowing that those words have a specific meaning. They're not just bits of glue. Yeah. So what I really like about the writing revolution is they're really thinking about, about meaning as well. They're talking about writing in different, different subject areas. So they do loads of great stuff and are definitely part of the answer. When, when I read the writing revolution, um, my overwhelming impression is this is Rosentrand's principles applied to writing. And I've been, that's what I've been looking for. Because obviously, Rosenstein's principles, very well known. Um, they're essentially uh, the principles of direct instruction, lowercase d, lowercase i, um, for the nerds out there. But uh, they're generic. They're, they're applied generically across various different subject domains, although they do derive largely from um, primary school English and maths teaching. Um, and so uh, to then see them fleshed out in that way which is i'm not even sure whether um judith hockman and nat wexler are familiar with rosenstein's principle i don't even know but to see what i thought was uh, rosenstein's principles fleshed out in a particular context i think we need more of that we need more of you know this is what rosenstein's principles or the principles of explicit teaching or direct instruction or whatever you want to call it look like in this context and this is someone has really thought it through in that context and then mm. um, that's what really struck me and that's what i was why i was so taken with it when i first had a look at it yeah i think that's very true and i think the writing revolution is a very practical subject specific uh, application as you say of a lot of those principles um and i think that's what you need because as you say that rosenstein's principles yeah you need to be applying them and looking at how they work in practice in in, in subject specific ways and i think that's what the writing revolution does for writing and i think you potentially need more of that for, for other subjects Absolutely. um so yeah, that's definitely, as I say, the writing revolutions work is definitely part of the part of the solution here. Well, Daisy, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated chatting to you. Um, and we've covered a lot, and I'm sure people would be very interested. So thank you. Um, 
Daisy.